Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I mentioned before, our sermon lesson today is going to be taken from 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to encourage you to open up that and also open up your worship guide in front of you uh, as we follow along during our sermon this morning. Yeah, he was a wanted man. Explicitly stated from the government was a death threat. There was government agents who were out after him, out after a man who I can best describe as Robin Hood, Jason Bourne from the Bourne Identity and the Bourne Ultimatum, and a pastor all rolled in to one. He was the type of guy I would like to be. He was the type of guy if I couldn't be, I'd at least want to be around. His friends called him Eli, but ever since the word of the Lord came to him and God called him to be the mouthpiece of God to all of Israel, people across all of time have called him the prophet Elijah. When God called the prophet Elijah, the very first thing he called him to do when he stepped into the office was to go to wicked King Ahab, a bad man. A man who scripture calls a king who had done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any other king before or since. A king who did more to arouse the anger of God than any other king in all of Israel. It was to him that God called and said, Elijah, you're going to go and you're going to tell him the punishment, the punishment for doing evil, for doing wickedness in Israel and not following after your God is that there's going to be a famine in Israel, a famine that's going to last years until Elijah, you say it, stops. So Elijah pronounced it to Ahab and then carried by the Lord, Elijah disappeared for three years. The government's assassins went into foreign nations looking for him, but they could not find him until one day, Elijah just showed back up. There's going to be a showdown. There's going to be the prophet Olympics between me, the prophet of God, and between your 450 prophets of Baal. Well, there's going to be a showdown on Mount Carmel. First Kings 18 says it like this. Elijah said to them, he says, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and I'll put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Well, it started out early in the morning and the showdown, the contest on Mark, Mount Carmel was every bit as dramatic as you hoped it would be. First at bat were the prophets of Baal. They stepped up early in the morning and they began shouting to Baal, Baal, hear us, Baal, hear us. They danced around their altar. About noon, you have the prophet Elijah kicked back in his lawn chair who begins the trash talking. Around noon, he starts saying, hey, maybe, Eli maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you just need to shout louder because he's deep in thought and you got to wake him up. 
And hilariously, they do it. The prophets of Baal start shouting all the louder. Tragically, as was their custom, they started to harm themselves, hoping that Baal would see them, that, that Baal would reach out and hear them and, and start their offering on fire. And this goes on for hours till the evening sacrifice. Till sometime around 5 p.m., Elijah says, it's enough. And he steps up. And the verbose prophet that has been trash-talking all day humbly grabs 12 stones, one for each tribe in Israel, and stacks it and builds an altar. As an in-your-face to Ahab and all the prophets, he gets them to take the Gatorade jugs filled with water, all 12 of them on the sideline, and dump them all over the bowl, all over the wood, all over the stones of the altar until the water soaked through and trickled down to a trench around it. And then very humbly, very quietly, he doesn't stand over his altar, but he backs away and he says this prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things as you command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. The bull eats up the... Flame comes down, eats up the bull, eats up the altar, eats up the wood. The flame licks up the water that had seeped down into the trenches. And all the people bow before the God and shout, the Lord, the Lord is God. And Elijah stands up. In a mountaintop moment, he points at the prophets of Baal and he says, seize them. They capture 450 prophets of Baal. They take them down to the valley and they slaughter them. What a mountaintop experience for the prophet of God. The people bow to the Lord. The prophets of Baal fall. The heavens, the heavens open up and rain comes down again. And then there's one more miracle worth mentioning. It could be a discussion for a different day. But Elijah, he runs he runs 20 miles carried by the Holy Spirit from Mount Carmel back to the capital city in Israel called Jezreel and he beats Ahab who's riding in his chariot. Yeah, he ran that fast. But here's why I point that out. Why did he run? Why did the prophet whose life had been in danger for what he had done, who is now definitely in danger for killing the king and the queen's 450 prophets of Baal, why did he go to the capital city of Israel, the nation that was trying to kill him for the last three years? Well, people have thought about this quite a bit, and there's really only two answers that make sense. One, he thought what God did on the mountain was about to take place in the city, that there was going to be a revolution or at least some repentance, that, that the king and queen, Ahab and his even more wicked queen, Jezebel, they were going to turn their hearts back to God. And if they didn't do it, the, the people of Israel, the people that saw what took place on the top of Mount Carmel, well, at least they would revolt. They wouldn't stand for a king and queen like that anymore. They would be a coup. What Elijah thought is that Big things were about to happen. But nothing changed. 
Our lesson for today is from 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's read it starting at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, Jezebel the queen, everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. He was a wanted man. The government made explicit death threats on his life. He thought the spiritual needle in Israel would tip to a point back towards God, but nothing changed. But someone changed. Elijah changed. The guy that that I just described a moment ago as this trash-talking athlete of a prophet who was something akin to Robin Hood, Jason Bourne, and a pastor all rolled into one. Well, now he wasn't the person that I want to be or even be around. I look at him, he's kind of the person we tend to be. That person I really don't want to be. He's afraid, faithless, despairing, and depressed. Read on with me at verse 3. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. He said, I've had enough, Lord. He tells his servant to say. And just so you know, Elijah had a servant not because he was super rich, but because he was the leader of the school of the prophets, which meant this servant was a ministry partner. And so telling his ministry partner to stay essentially meant Elijah was done. He quit. I'm out. I'm done with this ministry thing. He lay down. He pulled up the blankets over his head. And he prayed that the Lord would take his life. That's Elijah. Depressed. Sitting under a tree. Praying that God stop what his life is like. You ever been there? You ever experience a a mountaintop moment only to come down and realize you kind of feel alone in the desert? You ever feel like you've been running and running and running and now you just run ragged emotionally, psychologically, and you collapse You ever feel like no matter how good things have been, what's currently happening is void of any joy, of any any gladness that you should be experiencing? You ever feel like that? Or know somebody who does? It happened to Elijah, and it happens to one in every 14 Americans every single year. Roughly 7% of all Americans throughout the year will experience some form of depression. Some of you might experience depression because of genetics. Your grandma experienced it, your mom experienced it, and now you're dealing with it. Some of you might experience depression that popped into your life after the birth of your second child, postpartum depression. 
And it's not just the sleepless nights. It's not just the fact you're chasing around two kids now. It's the fact that your mind is literally trapping you. For some of you, it's self-induced depression. It's because you're taking depressants like alcohol and, and it's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle and over and over and over you're experienced and it doesn't have anything to do with what you've done. It's something that happened to you. Maybe it's PTSD. Maybe it's something traumatic that happened to you as an adult or, or in your childhood. Maybe it's seasonally onset depression. Or maybe it's something that happened to someone you love, the, the sickness. Maybe it's something that did happen to you, a loss of a job. There are literally a thousand different things that can press down, depress upon your heart. And there are a thousand different ways that you can experience depression. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is, is what do you do? What do you do when you're experiencing depression? What do you do when someone you love is feeling depressed? You know, that's what Kevin's friends asked. Kevin's friends never knew that he experienced depression. Uh, There's nothing in his life that led on to that. But then Kevin lost his job and, and Kevin turned to alcohol and then his friends couldn't miss the signs. Kevin changed. Gone was his infectious laugh. Gone was his willingness to spend time with them. But because Kevin's friends were that, they started to, to reach out to him. They invited him out to coffee but he didn't show. They prayed for him and they prayed with him, but Kevin barely mumbled amen. Because he lost his job, they, they went online and they sent to him job openings and things that they heard about, but Kevin lost the emails. So undeterred, Kevin's friends went online and what they discovered was a treasure trove of things that you can do when you're feeling depressed. They discovered articles written by clinicians and therapists and, and doctors and people who they themselves had been in the pit of depression and come out of it. And, and they found things like 10 things to remember to do and not to do when you're feeling depressed. They found things like, like exercise because just 20 minutes of exercise a day can raise naturally the dopamine levels in your body. They found advice like, like even if you don't feel like it, try to get good rest because resting your brain can do really powerful things to, to heal and restore your brain. They found things about, about nutrition and eating right. They found things like getting rid of the stigma about going to see a doctor because he can prescribe good medicine to you. And, and when he does and, or, or she does, don't just think you can be done taking it because here's how that, that medication works and here's how it can be a blessing for you. They talked about volunteering because not only can getting out and volunteering in others' lives benefit those people, but it also can have a powerful effect on you. They found all these to-do lists. And because they were Christians, there was even more to-do lists. There was, there was things about prayer. There was things about being a part of a community of believers and spending time with them. Things that science backs up and says, yeah, this is good. And we by faith know, yes, hearing the word of God, the gospel, it does. It transforms your hearts. And so excited, Kevin's friends printed off this list, took it over to Kevin's house and left it there, gave it to him, excited about the change that was going to take place in his life. But can I say something about that list real quick? Because you know that list, right? If you've ever experienced depression yourself or, 
or have loved someone who's depressed, you know about that list. Let me just say, that list is, it's good. There's good things on that list. There's nobody who has, who has come out of depression or learned to cope with depression who has just ignored that list, right? To, to get better, to, to feel better, you, you can't just wish it. You can't just sit in a room and wish it. There's some things on that list that you can do, steps that you can take to, to feel better, to, to cope with depression. And yet, can I, can I point out the problem with that list? Well, it's what Kevin's friends experienced when they went back to his house just a week later. Just sat there. Because it sounds shocking and maybe, maybe a little harsh, but it's no surprising. This is our first fill-in-the-blank for today. The depressed don't get much done. You've all been there, right? When you're feeling depressed, when, when sadness is overwhelming you, when it's a victory just to smile, well, you're not going to feel like going to church and, and throwing up your hands and being joyful. When it's a struggle just to get out of bed, you're not going to feel like exercising and, and, and think about eating right and doing all these things and going out and volunteering, right? And so the problem with that list is that, well, when it's put before you, people who feel bad end up feeling worse. So we're back to that question. What do you do? What do you do when you're feeling depressed or you know someone and you love someone or you live with someone who's feeling depressed? That's why I'm excited to finish out our story on Elijah. I'm very excited to look at the end of this story because here at the end of this story, what we see is that God has a recovery plan for Elijah and it does not include a to-do list. He doesn't drop before Elijah, here's what you must do to start feeling better. No, what God has is his to-do list. So what we're going to look at for the rest of our time this morning, it is not Google's to-do list, but we're going to look at God's to-do list. And what is God's to-do list? Oh, you read it in Psalm 42 just a moment ago. God's to-do list for the depressed is this. Look at verse 8 if you have your finger in Psalm 42, verse 8. The psalmist says this, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. The Lord directs his love. That is God's to-do list. Very simply, when he is talking about directing his love, what he is talking about is commanding. He, what he's talking about is sending forth his love to the people that he loves. That's God's to-do list. And God gets his to-do list done through people. And as we close out this morning, I want to look at four people through whom God gets his to-do list done. And we're going to look at it as we finish out this story in Elijah. In verse 3, Elijah said this. Elijah said, was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. 
The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The first thing we're going to look at is through, we're going to look at through whom God gets his to-do list done is through your doctors. Now you might be surprised by that. And in fact, I am maybe yeah, a little hesitant to bring that up because, well, this is messed up, but some Christians believe, some Christians believe that if you go to see a doctor, a therapist, a psychologist because of a mood disorder, because of a, a mental illness, that somehow means your faith is broken. That means there is some kind of spiritual imbalance in your life. And I get it. I get it. If, if you break your leg, a physical injury, there is a very clear physical solution. Put a cast on it. But what happens when the, there's a mental or an emotional break? Oftentimes what we do is we associate the, the mental or the emotional with our faith and we think, well, if you go with a physical solution, there's, there's no place for that. But can I, can I let you in on a little secret? Your brain... It's a part of your physical body. And God wants to get his to-do list done. God wants to direct his love, command his love, send his love to you through his doctors, through good medicine, through modern therapy practices. You don't have to choose between your medicine and your maker. I mean, think about this. We have people in our faith family who have gotten sick, who have had to have surgery, right? And what do we do when they come and say, hey, pastor, church, can you say a prayer? Do we say, all right, well, either you're going to pay for that medicine or we're going to pray, but not both. You've got to pick doctor or Jesus, which, which is it going to be? No. We, of course, take our prayer requests before our God. We ask him to bless them with health and recovery. We ask them to guide the doctors with wisdom in their practice. But we also encourage them to take advantage of every medical and scientific means possible for them to be well. And God does the exact same thing, right? With Elijah, not once but twice. What's the very first thing he does? Take care of his, his spiritual problem? No. The very first thing he does is take care of his physical problem by sending him a doctor. No, he sends him the angel of the Lord, right? But was this unscriptural or was this unspiritual of, of God? No, to take care of his physical needs? Not at all. In the same way that God feeds us through farmers, there are times where God fixes us through doctors. God Read on his to-do list done, and he's doing it through doctors. Here's the second one that we're going to look at. Read on with me at verse, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord God said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Here's the second one. God gets his to-do list done through doctors, and God gets his to-do list done through your pastors. And you can put pastors there if you want, or you can put in that blank anybody in your life who points you to the voice of God, who points you to the word of God. Can I tell you something about pastors? Pastors care a lot about how you feel. But pastors care relatively less about your feelings. I know it's hard to say, right? Uh, They care relatively less about your feelings because they care about something more than your feelings. Let me put it this way. If after church you come up to me and you say, Pastor, Pastor, I... I'm just feeling like God doesn't love me anymore. You want to know what I'm going to say to you? I'm going to say, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for telling me how you feel, but let's open the Bible and and can I show you something? God said that I've so loved the world, and that includes you. And and God said in the Old Testament that I have loved you with an everlasting love. I I love that you shared your feelings, but I got to share some facts. God loves you. If you, if you were to come up to me after church and you said, Pastor, I, I just feel like there's so much guilt. I feel like God can't forgive me because of what I did in my marriage, because of what I said at school or at work. I just feel so bad. You know what I'm going to say to you? I'm with you some facts. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your feelings. But can I share with you some facts? In the word of God, he tells you that as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. If you come up to me and you you tell me, listen, I I just feel so alone. I just feel like I have no purpose in life. You know what I'm going to say to you? I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for being so brave to share your feelings But I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to show you some facts. I'm going to show you some facts that come from the mouth of your God that says, as surely as I live, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That in me you have life. Listen, what what pastors and really any people are going to do in your life who love you, they're going to point you not to, to, a, to a fire, not to a, to a big thing in your life that's going to shake you like, like a wind or, and shake mountains. No. What pastors are going to do, they're going to preach a message, a message of facts, not a message for your feelings. And that's what our God did for Elijah He pointed him to the still, small voice, the whisper, the word of our God that transforms hearts and minds. Here's the last one. Here's number three. God gets his to-do list done through your faith family. God asked him twice 
Elijah, what are you doing here? And in verse 14, Elijah repeats himself. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Starts talking about his feelings again. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have preserved 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God is directing. God is commanding. God is sending his love to you, getting his to-do list done. What? Through these people here, through your faith family, you're setting up in a theater for 11 months. By now, you, you've come to understand that a church is not this. This is not the church right? This is the church, the people, the people that you are seated next to. And, and in, in big fancy church talk, we have a, a name for this. It's called the doctrine of the church, where, where two or three come together in God's name. That is where they gather around his word, where they gather around communion and baptism. Their God is with them. Do you want to find the presence of God? Do you want to be in the presence of your Savior? Of course you do. Then cement yourselves in the lives of these people around you. Because God is getting his to-do list done. God is sending, directing his love to you through these people. God says to Elijah, look, I have given you, I've given you guys like Jehu, I've given you guys like Hazael and Elisha. People in your life, Use them. Be with them. You cannot know transformation. You cannot know Christ. You cannot know your purpose outside of this community of believers, these 7,000 who share the same faith as you. Why? Because Christ is in them. Because God is in his word. Yes? But how do we come to know it? Faith comes from hearing the message. And guess who's going to tell you that message? It's the people of God. It's the men and women after his own heart. It's the 7,000 that have not bowed down to Baal. That's who God is getting his to-do list done through. Y'all, here might be the biggest application for you. If you know somebody who is, is feeling depressed, experiencing depression, you want to help them out? Be God to them. <laughs> that sounds pretty difficult, right? But that doesn't mean you have to fix them. Only God can do that. It doesn't mean you have to have all these passages memorized or, or a sermon written to deliver to them. It just means be with them. It just means be by them. It just means point them to that, to that whisper, to that still small voice. It just means to love them. Like God has loved you. God gets his to-do list done through doctors, through pastors, and people that point us to God. And he gets his to-do list done through our family of faith. And none of this would be possible, right? Except this, that God got his to-do list done through his son. Yeah, 
God gets his to-do list done through doctors, but none of that would be possible were it not for our great physician who is Christ Jesus. When Christ came to this earth, the very first thing, one of the very first sermons he preached was when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and he said this. He said, I was sent to bind up the brokenhearted. I was sent to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Yes, God gets his to-do list done through doctors, but it would not work if it were not for the great physician. And yes, God gets his to-do list done through pastors and people who point you through the word to the word, but it wouldn't be possible if the word didn't become flesh and make his dwelling among us. And speaking of people who dwell among us and through whom God gets his to-do list done, none of it would be possible if it were not for Emmanuel, who is God with us, who stood on his heavenly throne and looked at the depressed and the despairing and didn't drop down a to-do list and say, now get it done. This is what I expect of you. No, he climbed into the pit. He shone his light through that dark cloud and he said, here's what I'm about to do for you. One of the most, ah, one of the most amazing things that I heard as I was preparing for this sermon today was that in all of the Gospels, our Savior Jesus refers to God as his Father except for once. You know when that was? It was when he was on the cross. It was when he was on the cross, he stopped referring to him as as my Father and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there on that cross, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father, who through the Father could have all of his physical, all of his mental, all of his emotional needs cared for, voluntarily gave that up and voluntarily allowed and let God turn his face from him so that he might turn his face towards you and direct and send and command all of his love to go to you. And so that there on the cross, he didn't shout out, here's what I need you to do. He shouted out, what? It's finished. It's finished. God got his to-do list done through his son and he said, it's finished. You don't need to do anything. In me, all your needs are met. I heard a story this past week from a pastor about another youth pastor. And I'm not sure if the story was about this pastor when he was younger or not. But the story goes that this youth pastor, he thought that instead of doing the pizza and the Mountain Dew and the video games for, for a, a youth gathering, he was going to do something a little different. He set out one chair in the center in a circle of 20 chairs and he, and he put note cards on all of the chairs going around the thing. And when the kids came in, kind of surprised, he said, here's what we're going to do today. I want one of you to sit in the middle. I want one of you to sit in the middle of this circle. And I want you to, to be real. Tell us what's hurting. Tell us, tell us what sins are, are bothering you. Tell us how we can pray for you. Tell us how we can encourage you. And, and you, seated on the outside, you have note cards. You have passages with, with promises of God on it. And if your promise, if your passage applies to the person in the middle, go ahead and read it. Encourage them. Well, if you don't know where this story is going already, it was a disaster. 
a bunch of high school kids, ain't nobody going to go sit in the middle and talk about their feelings. Just about the time where the pastor thought we should probably just order some pizza and get back to, you know, the video games and other things, a girl stood up and sat in the middle. No one really knew her name, and before she even sat down, she, you could tell there was something wrong, and she said, my parents hate me. And you could hear a pin drop. And all of a sudden, a boy in the back started fumbling around, and he picked up his note card, and he read from Jeremiah 31, and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And she says, you don't get it though. My parents dropped me off here and they told me not to come back. They told me there's, there's no place for you at this house. We don't want you here. And another girl picked up a note card. She read from John 14. She read her Savior's words that says, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Through tears and sobs, the girl looked at her pastor and she said, why does nobody talk to me like this? Why does God not talk to me like this? He said he just did. And my friends, he still does. He still does. He still directs, he still sends, he still commands his love to go forth to you through so many different people in your life, but most of all, through your son. His son, Jesus Christ, your savior. And God gets his to-do list done through him. He got his to-do list done through him. Because he went to prepare a place for you. A place for me. A place for the depressed. Let's go before our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne with praise. We come before your throne praising you that in, in our darkest moments, in the deepest pits of despair and depression, you have given us resource for recovery. You have given us the tools for transformation and, and you've given us so many of them. Forgive us when we don't look to you and we don't look to all that you provide. But we thank you for giving us doctors and, and modern medicine and all these scientific revolutions that have really helped us physically, mentally, and emotionally. We give you thanks for pastors and parents and people in our lives who point us to the words of God. We give you thanks for one another, for each other, uh, through whom you bless us and through whom you point us to you. We give you thanks, Lord, for the gift of your son through whom we experience life and life in abundance. Amen.